Hello, and welcome to the May 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. First up this month, we're starting with another marriage equality update. And of course, on that front, the big news is the argument before the U.S. Supreme Court on April 28th in the consolidated marriage equality and recognition cases out of the Sixth Circuit. I had the privilege of being in the courtroom for the argument, so I will start by laying the scene here. Um... For me, it started Sunday evening. I got to the court Sunday evening in order to try to guarantee that I could uh, get in. It was quite an interesting process. I could talk a whole podcast about the process to actually get in. Um, and it was a bit cold Sunday night. I'll put that out there, too. So it wasn't the most enjoyable evening of my life. But uh, on Monday, it really was extraordinary. Uh, Monday and then into Tuesday morning. I mean, I met just about every famous marriage plaintiff I've ever wanted to, that, that, that exists and I've ever wanted to meet. Uh, the California case plaintiffs were there. Julie Goodridge from Massachusetts. Um, the Stuart Gaffney and John Lewis from Inree marriage cases in California. Um, so it was a really extraordinary day to just meet so many people from the movement and from uh, people who've been fighting for marriage equality for decades. Um, it was just a really jubilant, uh, exciting sort of atmosphere outside the court. Um, and Tuesday morning, a lot of uh, all the famous lawyers, uh, many of the famous law professors, uh, all of a sudden appeared in the in the line in front of us. Um, so there was a lot of picture taking and reminiscing and. Um, excitement as we all uh, waited to get in. Um, I even remember uh, uh, as I was waiting in line, Chuck Cooper from the Prop 8, famous, uh, the famous guy from the Prop 8 defense, who then later came out in Joe Becker's book to admit he has uh, a lesbian daughter who got married, uh, was there. Um, as we got in the courtroom itself, um, you even noticed more people that were in the not in the general public line, but somehow uh, must have gotten special tickets. But Margaret Marshall was there, who wrote the Goodridge opinion. Um, she was sitting next to Gavin Newsom, who was uh, the mayor of San Francisco in 2004, who started marrying couples and then uh, is now the lieutenant governor of California. Um, Ted Olson was sitting two rows behind me. He had been saying in the press he might not go because he wasn't arguing at this time, but he, he ate his sour grapes and showed up, so it was uh, exciting to see him there. So it was quite, uh, quite an exciting atmosphere and a uh, very interesting group of people that were in the courtroom uh, to watch the argument. Um, so I guess we'll start with the, the transcript itself, which Art has ex- exhaustively studied now. Well, <clears throat> I've, I've read it again. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the account of the argument that appears in the May issue of Law Notes, of course, was written immediately after listening to the audio, uh, before I had even read the transcript. And uh, on reading the transcript, I realized I left some stuff out that I might have uh, included uh, if uh, I hadn't had the press of time to get the uh, the May issue of Law Notes done. I, the argument was April 28th, after yeah. all. Uh, but it seemed to me, uh, from reading the transcript and recalling listening to the, the recording of the argument, that uh, we pretty definitely – I'm, I'm pretty sure I can predict we're going to have five votes for marriage equality on the court and perhaps even capture uh, – Justice Roberts, although perhaps in a separate concurrence on sex, sex discrimination grounds, maybe. Although I thought that the uh, the attorney uh, for uh, the state of Michigan, in that case, Mr. Barsh, uh, responded appropriately uh, to point out distinctions between this and the Loving case, and uh, so it's it's unclear. But looking at the, at the argument itself, uh, it seemed to me that. Uh, the defenders of the bans on same-sex marriage came up pretty empty-handed. Their their whole case seemed to be based on an argument that the state's interest in allowing people to marry and have all these benefits boiled down to a preference, a strong preference for having children bond with their biological parents, uh, but only if they have 
two biological parents to bond with. Uh, they, they never convincingly explained why, for example, a same-sex couple who has a child through donor insemination of surrogacy, and therefore at least one of the parents is the biological parent of the child, why it wouldn't be important to have the child bond with that parent, and if that parent has a same-sex partner who is raising the child and playing a parental role, why the state would have an interest in depriving that child of having married parents. Uh, it was really strange. There, there was one point... Uh, I believe it was in the argument on question two, which was the recognition question, where Mr. Whalen, the attorney representing uh, the state of Kentucky, uh, made this point about uh, that, or no, Tennessee, he's representing, well, he was representing all of them, really, but he was from Tennessee, uh, was making this point about how the state has always grounded the parent-child relationship in biology. And Justice Sotomayor immediately interrupted him and said, well, but what about adoption? I mean, the, the state uh, treats adoptive parents as having the same equal legal status as biological parents, and that's not based on biology. Yeah. Uh, and, and she pointed out, I think, also that uh, in, uh, in cases where uh, there's a surrogacy or donor insemination, uh, the state has recognized uh, parents, even though there's no biological tie. I think the, you can also see from being in the courtroom, I mean, the clear implication of the Mr. Birch's argument was um, the divorce is really the worst possible thing that, that someone can can do. And, you know, just sort of my words, divorce. In terms of you the could, effect on a child. Yeah, well, but just in terms of... Uh, you know, you could see Justice Sotomayor and also Justice Roberts, who has adopted children, really uncomfortable with some of the implications of this argument about what it what it said about uh, you know people who are adoptive parents and people who are divorced. Well, it's it's dangerous to read too much into uh, what the justices say yeah. during these arguments in terms of predicting the outcome. But uh, and and after listening to the audio tape on the afternoon of the twentieth, the court made it available very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I thought that, that Justice Roberts was uh, really not showing himself too much in terms of committing himself. Yeah. But then when I read the transcript, it really seemed, just seeing the words in print, that he was very, very sympathetic to the recognition argument and that he was somewhat skeptical about the arguments that the uh, the state was making. And Scalia really surprised me. I mean, Scalia, as usual, raised stupid questions like, uh, if, if there's a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry, uh, wouldn't that mean, that mean that a minister who has delegated authority by the state to conduct civil marriage ceremonies would have to marry same-sex couples even if uh, he or she had religious objections, although he didn't say he or she? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Mary Bonato countered that very well. She pointed out that under the First Amendment, we've never required uh, religious authorities to marry anyone who they wouldn't marry. And Justice Kagan stepped in and said, well, what about rabbis who won't marry Jews with non-Jews, which a lot of rabbis won't? And he's a devout Catholic. He yes. knows that priests are not required to right. marry uh, people that are divorced or that don't go, you know, that don't meet certain requirements. Well, I mean, what immediately occurred to me, and I was thinking, I wish I was on the podium there, you know, because Mary didn't give this example, but it's in response to Scalia, Catholic priests who insist that they won't perform a, a wedding between a Catholic and a non-Catholic yeah. unless the non-Catholic promises to raise the children as Catholic. Yeah. And uh, certainly in uh, jurisdictions that forbid discrimination on the basis of religion, uh, if they were to treat a Catholic priest as a public accommodation, which I don't think they would yeah. uh, because of the, uh, of the free exercise clause, but if they, they were to do that, uh, they would still allow the priest, because of the free exercise clause, to refuse to marry the couple in that situation. And, so, I also, and this isn't a legal argument, but I w was thinking in the moment about just thinking about some reality. What gay couple wants to get married by someone they're forcing to against their will perform the ceremony? I mean, what kind of wedding is that for a couple? Well, I think the, the point to make is that we now have had same-sex marriage uh, for more than 10 years in Massachusetts right. and uh, for uh, some shorter period of time in, in other states like Iowa and New York. Uh, and of course, over the last two years, we've gotten same-sex marriage spreading to uh, 37 or 38, depending how you count, and more than 70% of the population, I have yet to hear or see in the news, and I'm sure if it happened, it would be reported, yeah. that anyone has sued a minister or a priest for refusing to form a same-sex marriage. Now, there was a case involving a wedding chapel across from the courthouse in, in some western state, uh, which was presenting itself as a... Uh, 
open to the public accommodation to, for, as a place to perform weddings. And uh, they turned away a same-sex couple that had just gotten a license across the street from the courthouse. Uh, and uh, I think they claimed that they were ministers or something who ran the place. Uh, but the point is they presented themselves as a place open to the public, as not, not posing a religious test of people. Uh, and I think it was in their civil capacity that they were performing weddings. So that's like the one instance. Yeah. Uh, and I think ultimately the state uh, decided not to prosecute them, probably because of First Amendment concerns. Yeah. So I think the, the idea that they're going to see uh, lawsuits uh, against priests and rabbis and imams and, and other religious authorities who refuse to perform a religious marriage ceremony for a same-sex couple is absurd. Yeah. I think to give him maybe to try to understand a little bit what he was trying to get at, he was sort of saying at the end of it, the sort of uh, line of questioning that if a state could uh, le- you know, legislate for marriage equality, they could you know, specifically craft a, a provision that exempts ministers from having to do it against their will or whatever, which we sort of did in New York in our right. marriage equality law. But again, it's not cl- it's not remotely clear that they're forced to if, if they rule in our favor in this case without a specific provision in state law. Well, it's, it seemed clear to me that in terms of the arguments, there was sort of a, a ratcheting back and forth between the liberty arguments of the right to marry as a fundamental right and the equal protection arguments. And on the equal protection arguments, uh, it was interesting that the Solicitor General uh, made the point uh, when, when the court started to ask him questions about the fundamental right to marry, he said, well, you know, with respect, we're not arguing that. Uh, the government here is only arguing equal protection. We don't want to get into that. And it was clear, and, and it emerged in the questioning, that if you base this decision on a fundamental right to marry, you do open up questions about laws that restrict the right to marry on other grounds. Uh, and uh, the argument to that is, well, the state may have justifications. They have, they're su- sufficient. But if you say it's a fundamental right, then the justifications have to be compelling and narrowly tailored, and you get into real problems. What about polygamy? I mean, Alito seemed to have this obsession with polygamy. And he even brought up, what about four lawyers? Yes. Four lawyers specifically. Two men and two women. They're who highly have a, educated. Yeah, they so. want to have a group marriage. That brought hilarity yes. in, in the courtroom, a uh, brief outburst yes. of laughter. But... Uh, I think it's a serious question in this sense that there are people who want to practice polygamy in this country. They're mainly fundamentalist Mormons. Uh, We've had some cases uh, in the courts on prosecutions for polygamy. Uh, We've had, I think it was a Utah Supreme Court decision upholding the state's ban on polygamy. Uh, So it is a live issue in some parts of the country. And uh, there might be a concern that if the court recognizes a broad fundamental right to marry, uh, that there might be difficulties here, which might persuade Justice Kennedy, if he's the swing vote here, to go more to the equal protection side of things than the due process side of things. Although in his past gay rights cases, he seems very enamored with the idea of liberty uh, protected by the 14th Amendment as a nice textual basis to encompass gay rights claims. What did you make of his uh, question about millennia, the definition having been retained for millennia? There was sort of an audible sort of short freak out in the courtroom when he asked that question of everyone thinking, oh, God. But, um, you know, I think he was playing devil's advocate there. Well, I think he knew the question was going to come from other members of the court. The the history and tradition was going to be hit very hard, and it was uh, by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, among others. Uh, but I think uh, it was an opening for a dialogue on the issue and that uh, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg really jumped in on that mm-hmm. one uh, about how the institution of marriage has changed and that gay people wouldn't have asked to be married under the old institution of marriage, which presupposed a, a superior and an inferior party and the merger of identity into the identity of the superior party. Uh, she said it uh, has evolved uh, partly due to decisions by the Supreme Court, uh, into a gender egalitarian institution in terms of the law. And that the distinctions between husbands and wives that remain are very minor. Uh, I, I forget whether it was Birch or, or Whalen, uh, the attorneys uh, who are uh, representing the states here, who, who raised there was this one case, uh, if a child is, uh, is born... Uh, to a non-citizen, and uh, you know, the mother we the mother's a citizen, 
we assume the child is a citizen of the United States. Right. But if the father is not a citizen, or the father claims to be a citizen, we require him to prove that he's the biological father through genetic testing, blood testing, and things of that sort. And so there's, we just assume it with the woman, because we know who the mother is, but we can't know who the father is without testing. And so this is a way in which husbands and wives are treated differently, and uh, a difference based on sex and biology. So he was trying to push that, that uh, we were allowed to treat uh, same-sex couples different from opposite-sex couples because of biology. And and I think Justice Ginsburg pretty much dismantled that yeah. one as well. Yeah. I mean, she, she was uh, a fierce advocate yes. <laughs> in this case. Justice Kagan jumped in on a lot of things. Justice yeah. Sotomayor was very active. Justice Thomas said nothing, as yes. usual. Uh, since I wasn't in the courtroom, I can't report uh, on this. How about Justice Thomas's demeanor? Could we read anything? No, I mean, you can't even really. He leans back in his chair and he rubs his eyes often, and it's sort of very hard to get a sense of what's going on in his head, you know? Uh-huh. And it's so hard. When you're in the courtroom, you, I kept trying to guess who was going to ask the next question, so I was looking the right way, and you find yourself just constantly scanning at the people who are talking, you know? Um, so it was, I, I didn't focus a lot on what was going on with him. Yeah, but everyone else was pretty active, except, yeah. and this surprised me a lot, Justice Kennedy became relatively quiet on question two. Yep. He said very little. Yeah. It's really striking when you read the transcript how little there is from Justice Kennedy yep. on question two, and not even a lot on question one. And Ken- many people have read into that that yeah. he's going to you know, write the decision on question one, and question two will be moved. So yeah. that's why he wasn't very interested. Or question two will only be mentioned in passing yeah. a footnote. Uh, I will say the question two argument, and you mentioned this in Law Notes, is, was sort of frustrating to just sit through. I mean, it was painful. I think uh, especially the attorney for Tennessee, um, he answered some questions just plain wrong, and then instead of admitting he admitted he answered them wrong, he would say, if that's how you meant the question or something like yeah. that. So I think the justices were frustrated. I think he was just trying to get through it as fast as he could. Well, I think one of the problems is that the, the second question as they framed it didn't adequately communicate to the parties what they were interested yeah. in. They were interested in the situation where they decide question one, the right to marry, against the plaintiffs. Yeah. said, if we say that states have a right to refuse to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, then are those states nonetheless required to recognize out-of-state marriages by yeah. the 14th Amendment? Yeah. And uh, I can see that Justice Scalia was a little frustrated by that phrasing. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. Yeah. But Justice Alito, you know, right out of the box, yeah. uh, when uh, Doug Hallwood-Dreimeyer, who was arguing the case, start, starts arguing, and then Alito right out of the box says, well, I'm a little puzzled because you're making the same arguments as question one, and this is a different question. Uh, this is assuming that the petitioners lose on question one, that the respondents win, and uh, the question that we want answered is, do, do states that refuse to allow same-sex marriages still have an obligation to recognize them? Uh, and that really reframed the argument. I, th- I think, uh, I don't know that they were anticipating that that was mainly what the Even court was Even Justice Breyer, you know, jokingly said, I need to go back to my office and reread the full faith and credit cases because I'm yeah, not prepared because, for this right, question. Because then Scalia, uh, you know, they so, so Hallward Drymeyer launches into his equal protection argument and yeah. And Scalia says, well, you know, just a minute here. Uh, what about a constitutional provision, you know, that I can actually cite a provision that might be relevant? Because he, of course, believes the 14th Amendment is totally irrelevant to this question. Uh, so he says, what about the full faith and credit clause? And he reads it aloud. And he says, what about that? And so we end up with uh, several minutes of rather esoteric discussion about the full faith and credit clause and whether it applies to marriages and whether a marriage is a judgment or a record or a public act and 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 back and forth on definitions and then Sotomayor pushes it and she says well is a birth certificate a record that has to be recognized under uh, the full faith and credit clause and if so why not a marriage certificate you know so it it seems to remember not to jump down this rabbit hole but for for years I had read in the literature that the other part of DOMA that remains was superfluous because full faith and credit does not require states to uh, recognize marriages. And it's very interesting that no one mentions Section 2 of DOMA. And in fact, it doesn't get mentioned in the cases very much. Uh, Everyone is assuming that it was irrelevant and that the issue of marriage recognition now is really a 14th Amendment equal protection issue or a due process issue in the sense that once people are married, they have a liberty interest in their marriage being respected. Right. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. I think I'm much more confident 
of a pro-marriage equality ruling after reading the transcript than I was just listening. One thing I heard, John Davidson, who's the legal director at Lambda Legal, I was at their dinner on Monday, and he, he mentioned to me that he counted out that Justice Kennedy asked uh, Michigan's attorney seven questions and asked Mary Bonato three questions. So it seemed like he was even, if you use that logic, he was much more skeptical of the Michigan argument than uh, of Mary's argument. Well, there was, there was an article recently about a new study that was done that tried to correlate the questioning by the justices with the outcome of cases. Yeah. And they said the attorneys that draw the most questions usually lose. Yeah. And so it was reassuring going back through the transcript after having read that article that uh, they asked many more questions of the attorneys yeah. who were uh, defending the bans. And I'll say two important things that I took away from. I mean, he mentioned uh, that we've learned a lot about, uh, uh, we've learned a lot since Lawrence. And I think a lot of people in the room felt, uh, oh, that's great that he's recognizing, you know, the time span between Lawrence in this case is similar to the time span between Brown and, uh, and, Loving. and Loving. And he mentioned that as well. Um, and also his really, um, his sort of visceral reaction to the idea that marriage does not bestow dignity. I mean, it's just not, it's yeah. laughable. Well, it's laughable after you read his Windsor decision yeah. where he bases everything on the states have bestowed dignity on same-sex yeah. couples by allowing them to marry so the federal government can take it away. Yeah. And I think that was a, a major part of the rulings by the lower federal courts with all these marriage equality rulings. Yeah. The, the idea uh, that in the recognition cases at the very least, that once a state has allowed same-sex couples to marry, no other state can take away the dignity of that relationship. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident. Yeah. Now, uh, we have other developments to report. Uh, there was another marriage equality decision in Kentucky <laughs> by a state judge, uh, but it was immediately put on hold. Uh, we had uh, the First Circuit issued an announcement that uh, the appeal of the Puerto Rico case would be put on hold until the Supreme Court rules. Uh, we have not had a decision yet from the Fifth Circuit, which held oral arguments uh, in January. The Eighth Circuit uh, has put off oral arguments, uh, and that was a late development, uh, which was kind of strange. The attorney's very angry. They said they'd already booked. Well, the one plans. attorney, the one attorney who represents uh, the plaintiffs in North and South Dakota, who said, "My clients, you know, they they booked airfare, they booked hotels, everyone was planning because the the court." Uh, scheduled the oral argument to be held on May 12th, and it scheduled that after it knew that the Supreme Court had granted cert, yeah. and it knew that the Supreme Court was going to hear arguments on April 28th. And they even denied motion by the state to uh, stay proceedings because, you know, why should we get all geared up to argue in the Court of Appeals and spend all that time, and why should the, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers spend all that time preparing uh, when it would just be wasted? Uh, and yet the day after the oral argument, the Eighth Circuit announced we're going to put off hearing this case. And the Eleventh Circuit, of course, had already said they were going to put off uh, hearing the, uh, the appeals from Florida and Alabama. And the uh, trial judge in Georgia had said he wasn't going to decide the motion for summary judgment. So everyone's waiting on the Supreme Court. And I guess one point of speculation is will they hold this case until the very last day of the term, as they tend to do with gay rights cases, or will they decide it earlier? I mean, if it's sort of clear what the outcome is going to be, I would imagine that uh, the clerks of the justices may already have had drafts underway. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps we'll get a decision earlier. Yeah. Uh, they they know that uh, any day of delay, and this point was made, even even acknowledged by Chief Justice Roberts, mm. uh, because one of the arguments that the Sixth Circuit uh, had accepted from the states was this is a wait-and-see situation because we don't know what the long-term effects of same-sex marriage will be on our society. And therefore, it would any state would be prudent to say, let's see how it works out in the states that have done it, and we'll wait and see. And if it turns out that it's not a problem, then we'll do it. Yeah. And Mary Bonato very strongly made the argument that waiting and seeing is not a neutral position. Waiting and seeing is delaying the rights of same-sex couples to have marriages, and those uh, rights are very important on... Uh, a continuing basis as we go along, as people want to form families, as people are raising kids. Uh, and I think the, the same point was made by uh, Mr. Howard Drymeyer in his argument on the recognition point, yeah. where he talked about, uh, like, the military couple that were transferred 
Um, you know, it wasn't a question of choice yeah. to live in a state that didn't recognize their marriage that we were assigned. I would say both Mary and um, Doug really hit it out of the park with their uh, closings. Um, they both um, had time for rebuttal, and I don't think either of them got a question from the justice during the did. rebuttal. And they made some great points that were really powerful and uh, good notes to close on. And, and I think uh, that the points from the rebuttals are going to be echoed in the opinion. Yeah. Like and that. I will say, though, the most dramatic moment that we'll just quickly touch on here was after Mary sat down, this protester got up in the back of the room. Um, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but it was terrifying. I mean, you turned around. He looked like a terrifying person. I mean, he looked like the Unabomber or something. I mean, he was a terrifying-looking person, screaming the worst kind of bile. It's not in the transcript. And he, it took three or four security guards to tackle him and physically drag him out of the room. And we could feel him sort of being body slammed repeatedly outside the courtroom. I mean, it was something you could feel. And you could even hear him faintly screaming for about another 10 minutes. I mean, you could still hear him wailing out in the uh, right outside the courtroom. So I give credit to the Solicitor General as well for really being a professional during that whole thing because throughout his presentation, you could still hear this guy. I mean, it was really... Um, Didn't get picked up on the audio. No. After. Um, but uh, anyway. And, I, and, and of course, Justice Scalia's cryptic remark when he said, well, it's actually kind of refreshing. Uh, whether 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 what he meant was it's refreshing to see someone so passionate about important constitutional questions or whether he was saying it's refreshing to see someone so committed yeah. to the rule of God instead of the rule of law. I don't um, know. I, I, thought, I saw what Evan Wilson commented in the, to the media that it was a, a, a powerful reminder of how, the kind of hatred that still exists out there. You know, And this guy actually... Um, he, the, the general public line, those people were in line for four or five days to get in. Um, so that this guy waited outside for four or five days to do that. It's, you know. And no one online had any clue that he... I, I loved... I didn't talk to people afterwards, but I'd love to know who was sitting next to him for four days and what they, if they expected him to do something like this or not. Interesting. All right. A uh, lot to cover there. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss the several significant rulings involving transgender rights this past month. All right, we're back discussing the mixed bag this past month in several significant cases involving transgender plaintiffs. Can you start us off with the big restroom ruling from the EEOC, Art? Okay, and, and this, is, this is a very important one because the EEOC a few years ago uh, took the position that discrimination on the basis of gender identity is sex discrimination. But they had not yet committed themselves on one of the most important questions that seems to have been a stumbling block going back decades in attempts by transgender people to bring sex discrimination claims under Title VII, and that is the issue of restroom usage. Uh, even in jurisdictions that have banned gender identity discrimination, uh, either expressly or by implication from their civil rights statutes, uh, judges have generally maintained the right of employers to decide who can use which bathroom facilities uh, in the workplace. Uh, there was a, a famous case involving West Publishing Company many years ago, and a uh, transgender employee who had been working, I believe in West had a, a Buffalo office, and then she was transferred out to uh, Minnesota, which was one of the first states to uh, ban gender identity discrimination as part of their definition of sexual orientation in their statute. And she had restroom problems at West's uh, facility in Minneapolis. And the court said, well, West has a right to decide. Uh, so the EEOC has come out and said no. Uh, and this was a case involving the Army of all employers. Uh, the Army uh, is not covered with respect to uniformed personnel under Title VII, but is with respect to civilian personnel, as is the rest of the federal government. Uh, there are specific provisions in Title VII governing federal employees. And the EEOC, uh, in this case involving a uh, transgender woman who was a civilian employee of the Department of the Army, uh, went through transition uh, process. Tamara Lusardi is a female name. Uh, got the name change, uh, got the change on all, all of her employment records and everything else. Uh, when she was finally ready to make the transition vis visibly in the workplace, uh, spoke with supervisors, and uh, there was some sort of agreement. And it's not clear from the EEOC opinion how voluntary this was on her part, although she did say, I believe, during a deposition 
that uh, she didn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, which may be why she agreed to this, that instead of using either a men's room or a women's room until she had the final uh, sex reassignment surgery, she would use the executive bathroom, which was a uh, non-gendered bathroom that was used by uh, management officials. Uh, and uh, that seemed to be working, but then it developed into a problem because the, that restroom wasn't always available. Uh, for one thing, it could be occupied when she had to go, and for another thing, it was out of order sometimes. So she started using the women's restroom. And this uh, made a lot of sense because she's presenting as a woman and going into a men's room presenting as a woman doesn't, it's not cool, you know. Uh, so, uh, and she got uh, chastised for this and threatened. And also this one supervisor who insisted on using masculine pronouns about her and making fun of her name and things of that sort. Uh, so she filed uh, charges under Title VII of uh, sex discrimination. And the EEOC said, uh, now that we have, in our prior ruling, the Macy case, said that gender identity discrimination is sex discrimination, we're going to take the next step and say that once someone is, uh, has been diagnosed with uh, gender dysphoria and is transitioning and is living as their desired gender, they have a right to be treated as a member of that gender. And the employer here was resisting on the grounds that she hadn't had her sex or reassignment surgery yet. Uh, so the EEOC seems to be making some important points here. They're, they're saying the employer doesn't get to define uh, sex or reassignment surgery as a definitive step that must be taken in order to be recognized as a woman. That gender identity is not really about genitals. That gender identity is about uh, how a person identifies and enacts their gender role. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, someone who, uh, she's got the name changed, uh, she's done the hormone treatment, she's dressing, grooming as a woman, uh, presenting as a woman, living as a woman, has a right to be treated as a woman, which means the right to use women's restroom facilities. And also that uh, the uh, behavior of this particular supervisor was creating a hostile environment for her. Uh, so the EEOC has made some important points in this case. The interesting thing will be to see the extent to which federal courts will accept it. And the EEOC has a, a strategy, which you wrote about in the case involving the funeral home, uh, which you'll talk about next, uh, a strategy of trying to establish its position on transgender rights under Title VII in the federal courts. So, And unfortunately, they got a little bit of a setback in this a case out of the federal district court in Michigan. Um, they had sued a funeral home in uh, 2014 uh, for firing a transgender woman after she announced that she was transitioning um, and would be begin presenting as a woman. Um, she worked as a funeral director and embalmer for a funeral company in Michigan. Uh, and they brought a couple of uh, claims in the lawsuit. The EEOC sued on her behalf. Uh, and they said it was sex-based discrimination because she's transgender, because of her transition, and because uh, she didn't conform to the employer's sex or gender-based preferences, expectations, or stereotypes. Uh, the employer filed a motion to dismiss, and that's what the, the judge was deciding here. Um, and Judge Sean Cox from the Eastern District of Michigan um, the he let the motion to he denied the motion to dismiss so the the case survived but he wrote clearly in the motion to dismiss that he was going to get rid of uh, the pure sex discrimination claims that the EEOC brought um, he said there is no Sixth Circuit or Supreme Court authority to support the EEOC's position that transgender status is a protected class under Title VII uh, he cited two pre Macy and Macy was the first EEOC. Uh, decision uh, sort of holding that transgender discrimination is sex discrimination under Title VII. Um, so he looked at uh, two pre-Macy federal appellate court decisions, one of which was actually involving sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, he actually then ironically devoted most of the remainder of his opinion to uh, the leading Sixth Circuit case on sort of transgender Title VII discrimination. Um, and he sort of reads that as foreclosing a pure sex discrimination claim for transgender discrimination. But really, when you read over the case, um, 
the Smith v. City of Salem case says that there is no um, transgender people are not foreclosed from a sex stereotyping claim, uh, which is what he said, um, he, which is what he left intact here after the motion to dismiss. Um, it's called a Price Waterhouse sex stereotyping claim, and it's named after the famous uh, 1989 Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court said that um, really holding um, an employee to certain stereotypes or expectations based on their gender does violate Title VII. It's become sort of the the, the leading case in that area. Yeah, and it's, it's partly because of a little sleight of hand by Justice Brennan. Uh, and this was in a plurality opinion, I believe. And, and Justice Brennan uh, substituted the word gender for sex in writing his analysis, even though Title VII uses the word sex. And by doing that and getting the rest of the court to sign on to it, because the concurring opinion signed on to it as well, uh, he basically expanded the meaning of sex under Title VII, and subsequent courts have run with that in terms of transgender cases in some cases, right. not in all cases. And they said if sex equates to gender under Title VII, then gender identity can be seen as uh, an aspect of sex uh, such that discrimination based on gender identity is sex discrimination. Yeah. Uh, and that brings me that brings me back to our first segment of yeah. the marriage stuff because what what we didn't mention I think was uh, Chief Justice Roberts' brief flirtation with the sex discrimination okay. argument, which uh, people may remember was embraced by Judge Burson in a concurring opinion in the Ninth Circuit in Ladder versus Hodder. Uh, the idea that if a uh, let's say you have a, a two men and a woman, and uh, the man can marry the woman but not the other man, and it's because of their sex. Yeah. And therefore, this is sex discrimination. Uh, and, and he posed that because uh, there was some back and forth about whether this is sexual orientation discrimination, and the state says, well, we don't inquire into sexual orientation. We say any, any man can marry any woman regardless of their sexual orientation. And he says, well, couldn't we just treat this as a sex discrimination yeah. case? Uh, and that goes back to... Uh, to this again, the idea of expanding sex to include gender and uh, having a, a more robust feeling of what sex discrimination is, because the response of Mr. Birch in that case was, no, the, the court's traditional jurisprudence on sex discrimination is that it's discrimination against women because they're women or against men because they're men, not just creating sex classifications. And so, one of the great moments, too, he also said it was, that it's not facially sexual orientation discrimination. Right. And Justice Kagan, you just looked at her face. She was like, really? Really? Well, <laughs> if, you don't like, if you don't allow someone to wear a yarmulke, isn't that religious discrimination, yeah. discrimination against Jews? Yeah, without you know, putting in the so, words in the right. statute. Yeah, so, you know, getting back to, the, uh, to this, I, I, think, I think you might say, does it really matter what theory we use as long as the court didn't dismiss the case and says it is a valid Title VII claim? And I say this because we don't always get this far. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is another case that uh, we reported on this month, uh, Johnston versus University of Pittsburgh, yeah. uh, which was brought under Title IX, not under Title VII. Title IX is a uh, statute dealing with educational institutions that receive federal money and are prohibited from discriminating based on sex. And most of the public knowledge about Title IX has to do with colleges and universities who are forced to expand their women's athletic programs so that their funding would be uh, somewhat similar to the funding for men's athletic programs. But Title IX also deals with both employment aspects of educational institutions uh, and also the rights of students. And uh, this case involved a transgender student. At the University of Pittsburgh, a, uh, this, in this case, it was a female-to-male uh, transgender transition. Uh, the student, uh, who is now using the male name of Seamus Johnston, uh, and uh, at the time that he applied to the university, he hadn't been formally diagnosed, I believe, and hadn't gotten a name change yet, and so applied as a woman to the university. But by the time he showed up, he was transitioning uh, and was presenting as male and had presented as male throughout his time as a student at the university. Uh, this was uh, – and was using men's restroom facilities without incident. Uh, but then 
signed up for a weight training course that was taught at the athletic center and was using the men's locker room. And that began to arouse comment. And uh, so the university said that uh, until uh, the process was finished, including surgical alteration, et cetera, et cetera, he would have to use, there was a facility in the, in the athletic center that was used by coaches and uh, umpires and referees and stuff like that, which was gender neutral. And he'd have to use that. He couldn't use the men's restroom and he couldn't use the men's locker room. But he insisted on using the men's restroom and the men's locker room. And the problem was that that gender-neutral facility on the athletic center was the only place in campus that was a gender-neutral restroom facility. If he was in a classroom building, he had a choice, men's room or women's room, and he preferred the men's room because, among other things, uh, I would think that you'd get in trouble with the campus police if you're dressed and presenting as a man and you're going into ladies' rooms. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. going to cause some consternation. Uh, and uh, so he insisted on using the men's room. Campus police apprehended him and arrested him, and he was expelled after an internal appellate procedure that included a student board that voted against him. Uh, and he brought suit under Title IX, claiming that he was a victim of sex discrimination. And the federal district judge here, Judge Kim R. Gibson, who I had to look it up, Kim R. Gibson is a man, because I want to use the correct pronouns in my article, and it would seem to me that a judge which has a, who has a gender-neutral name would have been sensitive to this kind of stuff. But Judge Gibson was not. Judge Gibson said, I'm in the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit has never ruled that discrimination based on gender identity is sex discrimination. And neither has the Supreme Court. Therefore, it is a question of first impression. And I think that it's settled law that it's not sex discrimination, which strikes me as kind of strange because we have all this ferment going on. We have... An Eleventh Circuit decision saying that it's sex discrimination to uh, for a public employer to discriminate against someone because of their gender identity. We've got district court decisions all over the country. Uh, we have the EEOC. We have the Justice Department because after the EEOC ruled in the Macy case that uh, the uh, sex discrimination claimed by the transgender employee was cognizable under Title VII, ultimately. Uh, because the agency involved was part of the Justice Department, the case came up through the Justice Department to be litigated, and the Justice Department's Civil Rights Office ruled that it was gender identity discrimination. And in fact, in uh, Ms. Lusardi's case, uh, we had a, a ruling by the Justice Department as well, but uh, she persisted in her EEOC claim because the Justice Department's remedy was too limited. Uh, they merely called for education in the workplace, and she was looking for uh, something more than that in terms of uh, specific remedy. Uh, so Judge Gibson says no. Uh, Judge Gibson says they have a right to dismiss him, to expel him. Uh, and I think the uh, the real focus of the opinion was on distinguishing Title VII and Title IX and saying that the issues are different, that the university could have a legitimate interest in protecting the privacy of students by excluding Mr. Johnston from uh, the men's rooms. It just strikes me as strange. Uh, so, you know, we have, we have these different decisions coming up, but then we have the other decision, which I think is likely to result in a case going to the Supreme Court, and that's the Norsworthy decision yep. from uh, the uh, Federal mm -hmm. District Court out in California. Uh, this is uh, Jeffrey Norsworthy, also known as Michelle Lale Norsworthy. Uh, who is a, uh, a prisoner in the California prison system and is, uh, identifies as transgender, as a transgender woman, and is being kept in an all-male prison and although uh, is receiving hormone therapy, uh, the medical, uh, well, the, the medical testimony was divided, of course, uh, but uh, Norsworthy's own health care providers say that uh, sex reassignment surgery is a necessary treatment for her at this point uh, and should have been done long ago. And the state, of course, is resisting. No state prison system currently funds sex reassignment surgery or allows it, even if a prisoner has resource to, uh, you know, other resources to pay for it. They won't let them out of the prison to go to a hospital to do it. Uh, so uh, we had a decision out in uh, the First Circuit in the Kosilic case 
in which the federal district judge in Boston, Judge Wolf, had ordered the Massachusetts prison system to provide sex reassignment surgery for Michelle Koselleck. And uh, a First Circuit panel had affirmed that two to one, and then it was reversed on bank. And uh, this this development postdates the publication of the May issue, but this week the Supreme Court denied cert in the Casilla case. Uh, there's no circuit split. But we may get a circuit split now because Judge Tiger out in uh, the Northern District of California in San Francisco ruled in favor of Michelle Norsworthy and said that she is entitled to uh, sex reassignment surgery. The state asked him for a stay pending appeal. He denied it. He said, the evidence before me makes it very clear that this is surgery that is necessary, medically necessary, that she is undergoing severe stress and pain as a result of being denied it. And he said, I realize that uh, ordering that it take place in response to a preliminary injunction will deprive you, essentially, of judicial review, but I'm going to insist on it. And so they filed an emergency petition with the Ninth Circuit, uh, the state of California. Uh, their view is that this is something that should be postponed until after prison. If they have a prisoner who isn't in there for life, they say uh, it, it can be postponed. Mm -hmm. And if they have a prisoner who's in for life, they say it doesn't make any difference. And uh, they presented their expert testimony, included one of the expert witnesses from the Casilla case, who takes the position that uh, sex reassignment surgery is always elective surgery, and it's never medically necessary. And uh, the court said, no, we're, we're not going to buy into that because the consensus of the medical profession is that for certain people it is medically necessary. And if competent professional experts testify that for this particular prisoner it's medically necessary, then it violates the Eighth Amendment. It's cruel and unusual punishment to deprive a prisoner of medically necessary treatment for a serious medical condition. And no one argues that gender identity uh, is, does not present a serious medical condition. Uh, so I think this is one where there's a possibility that the Ninth Circuit will affirm Judge Tiger, which means we would have a circuit split, which means this would finally bring a transgender legal issue to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, they've had so many opportunities. They, they, they turned down cert from the Sixth Circuit in the Title VII case, the Salem, City of Salem case. Uh, they've uh, turned down a lot of prisoner cases involving transgender issues. They only actually granted cert in one case involving uh, whether the prison has an obligation to protect a transgender prisoner from assault. And they said, of course they have it. I, I don't think it was unanimous, though. I think uh, Justice Thomas believes in assaulting prisoners. I mean, he said that in several cases. That does violate the Eighth Amendment for prisoners to be assaulted. Uh, All right. I, okay. You know, one other thing we should mention, too, from this past month, it's not really a legal development, but we probably had the most famous transgender coming out that uh, most Jenner, people can, right. uh, can think of. Um, and I think many people were very impressed with how the interview... Uh, was presented. I think a lot of people were worried it was going to be a circus, and it was a very heartfelt uh, um, sort of um, wonderful interview done by Diane Sawyer of ABC News, where Bruce uh, announced that he is, for all intents and purposes, a woman. Um, but insists on using male pronouns. I think for he's, now. he's got a ways to go on some yeah. some of the questions she asked. Him, I think he he hasn't made a decision on sex reassignment surgery, right? Right. That's what he yeah. said. Yeah. So, uh, and sex reassignment surgery. You know, there are, there are plenty of transgender people who don't go that route of sex reassignment surgery. Uh, it's extremely expensive. It's not covered under most uh, private insurance policies. I think there was a lot of debate under Obamacare whether it should be covered. States are starting to move to cover it under Medicaid and Medicare, but only a few. Uh, so, you know, the resources uh, may not be there, and also some people just don't want to submit to surgery. And we're also told that gender dysphoria, like most medical conditions, exists on a continuum. Yeah. And that some people have more severe and really need to have the surgery, and some people have less severe, and that for some people it becomes more severe over time. The evidence presented to Judge Tiger in the Norsworthy case uh, showed that uh, the severity of the uh, feeling of gender dysphoria, of disconnect between the body and the identity, may strengthen with time. So someone who may not have needed surgery at some point may come to need it. Uh, so this is we're still learning a lot yeah. about gender identity. All right, we'll take our last break, and when we return, we'll discuss an interesting ruling out of an intermediate appellate court in Kentucky concerning 
the standing of an ex-partner to intervene in a step-parent adoption after her former lesbian partner gets married to a man. We're back discussing the case of WRLVAH. Quite the soap opera in this case, Art. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, this is a a decision uh, from the Kentucky Court of Appeals from April 17th. A.H. and N.L. were in a committed relationship with one another, and they decided to have a child together uh, through uh, donor insemination. Uh, A sperm donor signed a statement relinquishing parental rights. The child was born. The couple eventually broke up, and uh, the birth mother married a man. And... uh, subsequently cut off uh, the co-parent from uh, from contact after some period of time, and then the man moved to uh, file the petition to adopt the child, a pretty normal step-parent adoption procedure. And in the meantime, uh, the co-parent had already filed the lawsuit seeking uh, a joint custody, seeking visitation rights, etc., and now she added to that uh, that she wanted to intervene uh, to oppose the adoption. And the court held that she does not have standing. Uh, The trial judge said she did. Uh, But uh, WRL, the uh, potential adoptive father, appealed to the Kentucky Court of Appeals, which reversed. Uh, It said that uh, the the co-parent did not, at this point, have any kind of justiciable right or standing in the matter, uh, which... uh, I wonder how this would come out if we had marriage equality in Kentucky. I don't know. I mean, if we had marriage equality in Kentucky and these women had been married when the child was born, obviously then she would have some kind of right, although this is one of the issues that's going to need to be worked out once we have marriage equality, uh, the uh, parental relationships and the degree to which states may have leeway to treat them differently than different sex couples. I would say under equal protection they won't have much leeway. But that's still to be worked out. Right. You know, one, one thing that we have to remind people is that a marriage equality ruling from the Supreme Court is going to leave lots of unanswered questions. And I th- even the Solicitor General said that. From, yeah. To one of the questions, that lots there are going to be unopened un- un- questions. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have that decision. Right. You know? Um, so so this, was, this was a disappointing case. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they come up from time to time. Uh, one thing that we have to remember is that the whole area of LGBT family law is a developing area in which there is a big gap between the states, the progressive states out front, and the non-progressive states down back. And if you want to know where the non-progressive states are, look at a map on marriage equality and the yeah. ones that don't recognize. Although I went to a very interesting yeah. program recently on New York law and parents is you know, really behind the time. So even states you might expect uh, are not there. All right. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we'll see you in June. <laughs>